Welcome back to Simon and White and the podcast at the crossroads of business, media, and politics. I'm Christian White, and joined as always by Mark Simon. Mark, please say hello. Hello. Good afternoon, everybody. All right. So inflation is roaring. It isn't transient, as we were told by our Federal Reserve and our Biden administration. It came in uh, at 7.5% annual rate for January. So it's it's as high as it's ever been recently, as high as it's been in 40 years. And markets were off 2% on Thursday when the news came out. Um, you know, you have some commentators, uh, especially the pump and dump guys over at CNBC and others saying, buy on the dip. This is a great opportunity. But it seems to me that um, you know, this might be the beginning of a long-term bear trend that is driven by inflation. Uh, market valuations are still kind of high. Everything is, seems to be going up in prices. We're coming off this period where people had a lot of cash to spend from, from, from governments, uh, spending that went through the roof and other causes. What do you think? What, uh, what do you think the political and other implications of this inflation are, Mark? I think it's impacting on a level in two ways. First of all, I think it's showing us how completely out of touch the elites on Wall Street, Washington, D.C., West Coast, whatever, are. In other words, when you tell somebody that, that uh, the price of electricity is up 13 percent, gas is up close to 40 percent, meats are up 14 or 15 percent, eggs are up 13 percent, milk's up 7 percent. I hate to say it, for a lot of the people who are probably our top 5% earners, they go, they go oh, it's more expensive now, but they don't, they don't change their life. For everybody else, life is changing. And the point that I'm trying to drive home here is that the decision-making now is horrible in terms of policy-making because we have basically elites that are completely disconnected. Look at the White House with Jan Psaki and her husband. That's probably a $600,000 a year, $700,000 a year household. Do you think she even looks at the price of milk when she has it delivered in from Whole Foods? Do you think any of the people in, in these elite positions at Wall Street firms even look at this? So I really think investors and people have to go out there and start really looking at what's happening on the ground. And the fact is, if you're making under $150,000 a year, family of four, family of five, four people, it's really impacting mm -hmm. you. You're starting to see it. The gas costs more. Imagine you're a family of four with teenagers and you're running two cars. Gas prices are up 40%. That's several. That's a few thousand U.S. dollars a year more that's coming out of your pocket. Heating fuel is up. Right. We have some We have some statistics on, on oils. Let me jump in with those. So West Texas Intermediate is now at 90 bucks a barrel. Uh, London Brent's at 91. AAA says current, the current average for regular is three bucks and forty-eight cents a gallon. That's up from three thirty a month ago. But if you look, go back a year, this is up very. Well, and, and it goes all the way through the economy. I mean, like you know, I'm from a farm family. When you know people like we were making a lot of money. They were making my cousins were making a lot of money a few years back because gas was two forty-five a gallon and beef prices were still pretty strong. Now beef prices are fourteen percent up. But guess what? Fuel is forty percent up. Everything on the farm is directly related to fuel. So what are you doing? I think it's a really bizarre situation we're in here that, like I said, we've just got these two economies in America. We've got the elites who don't seem to feel anything. You know, nothing seems to bother them. And we've got everybody else, which is probably 90 percent of the country that's looking around going, oh, my God, I'm spending a lot more money. That's going to bleed through into the markets because people are not going to be buying as many capital goods. Yeah, they, they may not be going out to dinner as much as they, they used to. Wage, wage earnings are up. And also the other thing, too, is 
that when that earnings go up, when those wages go up, that's an inflationary pressure. So in other words, you can't really have cheap right. meals out now. You know what I'm saying? If the family of four, all right, McDonald's is there. But if you go to TGIF or one of the chains or something like that, a family of four, it's an $80 dinner. And, you know, there's really not much you can do to save that. Look, oil prices, as we're talking about oil, let's be blunt. If Ukraine, something in Ukraine happens, what are we at, 90 bucks? Uh-huh. A bit, get, we're at 110 probably. And then gasoline goes to what? $4.20 a gallon? You know, if you're, if, you're, if you're a home care aide or if you're a nurse or if you're a driver and you drive 20 miles each round trip each day or 40-mile round trip each day, that's a lot of money. You know, it's, it's adding up. I, I, I just don't see anything good happening in the economy as long as we've got 7% inflation. Right. Because as we all know, 7% is not the real number. The real number, nobody, nobody goes out and buys the basket of goods. The real number, as most people say, is probably more closer to 11 or 12% because it's gasoline, it's food. If, if gas is up 40%, groceries are up 9%. Um, 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 fruit and vegetables are up seven or eight percent. It's part of like you know, you know, non other groceries, uh, fresh groceries. Vegetables are up that much. Um, clothing's up seven or eight percent now because of the high freight rates coming across the Pacific. People don't realize that. So everything's more expensive. So you know, if, what if, if your life's got a t- if every every time you look around, you're paying ten percent more. That's kind of hard to get. Uh, that's kind of hard to get excited about doing other things in the economy. Right, and for, for most people who aren't in that elite, it's been like a ten percent wage cut, thanks to uh, yeah. the ruling class. I mean, at, at some of our, at some of my businesses, we we just put in like a seven, six and a half percent wage increase. We've already decided that's not going to be enough. Now we're not going to be able to do anything in the next couple of months, but we're going to have to come back and revisit that. Right, because if you want to keep people. You know what I'm saying? People are mobile now. So God bless them. They can move. But if you're an employer, you know, how do you how do you deal with that? Now, politically, the polls show if you look at the real clear politics average of approval polls for Joe Biden. So this includes some that probably inflate his approval. But it's a, it's a little under 41 percent now. You know, 30 percent, even the high 30s really is a an unpleasant place for pre- presidents to be. We're talking George W. Bush at the absolute bottom when Iraq was going poorly and the uh, economy was mm-hmm. about to fall apart. Um, and people really react, especially gas and food. That is something they're very sensitive to. But you point out, you know, there's no easy bounce back from this. If inflation is real and the Fed seems to be getting that and there's talk now of uh, maybe a half point um, raise uh, in one in one um, instance uh, and a, a full point uh, between now and June. I think it's actually going to take a whole lot more than that. Behind the scenes, the bond purchasing program of the Fed, which creates dollars out of thin air, increases the money supply. Uh, that's going to end by March, so it's really coming to an end now, theoretically, if that's if what they're saying is the truth. So, you know, for Biden, looking ahead, there's not a lot that he can do. They're certainly not going to do anything on the supply side. They're not going to cut regulations or taxes or encourage the energy industry. So, you know, you have a situation that's already bad with rates going up, potentially the market coming down, GDP going down. Um, he's in trouble, right? Look, I think there's those little stickers. I actually saw some when I was... Uh driving up uh, around recently to DC. <laughs> You're driving up to the little I did those stickers that Joe Biden has. I saw some I saw some of those in uh, in Pennsylvania as I was driving back. I go up around the Harrisburg area 
And you saw some there. You saw, and then I saw some going down on 95 when I stopped at the station. They had ripped them off, but you could see people were putting them on there. Um, look, I think that there is no confidence whatsoever that these people in the White House or in D.C. can turn things around. I think Republicans have to be very careful that we actually started, that we probably should say we are Republican, that Republicans actually address issues. In other, rather than have Marjorie Green and all the other people talking about yes. conspiracies and all these things, because that's that's the that's the conservative elites who are just as out of touch. In other words, the people that vote for her are the people she should be taking care of, and you can't have an elite every you can't have these crazies on both sides, you know, and none of the problems are getting addressed. I, I think the truckers strike. To be perfectly honest with you. Uh, uh, truckers convoys in Canada are actually a direct reflection of that. The Canadians don't have the emotion in their politics. We do. But they're just looking over at Trudeau. He doesn't care about them. Then on the conservative side in Canada, basically, they're fighting all, over everything that's ridiculous, you know, and they're going, hey, we're trying to get trucks and we don't want to stop. We don't want to stop on the border for three days and get tested all the time and, you know, lose all this money. And most of these drivers, actually, they're, you know, they get paid by the mile. So if you're spending time sitting there waiting for a test, you're not getting paid. And, you know, anybody who knows about the border, and I do because we've got businesses on the other <laughs> side, I know quite a bit about the border. Those trucks start waiting more than three hours at the border. They start getting some really nasty truck drivers, you know. I and mean, these guys, when you're coming down from Ontario, they're looking at like five different five. They're all they're looking at multiple different um multiple different bridges to go over. You know, there's a whole network of information. So all of a sudden for Trudeau and Biden to go, hey, we're going to test everybody. It's not happening. And I think, <laughs> I think, to be honest with you, I don't know how Biden gets out of this. I mean, what do they do? Do they walk Fauci out the back room? You know what I'm saying? You know, right. Do a Joe Pesci on him in the bottom of the bottom of the floors or something like that? I mean, if I was Fauci, I wouldn't be walking in any rooms with plastic on the floor. It'd be all over, you know. But I mean, it's just... You look at these guys and they don't know what to do. Look at the governors from New Jersey. I was watching CNBC this morning, you know, because Maria's not around. I was watching CNBC this morning. And, you know, Ned Lamont or whatever. What a great name for a governor, Ned Lamont from Connecticut. I mean, the guy is like literally, he is Ned Lamont. That's the only thing you have to say about him. And he's sitting there going, oh, no, well, you know, things have changed. It's like, no, like nine Democratic governors yeah. got together and what did they do? Nine Democratic governors got together and basically decided that, all right, we'll find political cover from our left because they're worried about from the left. We'll find we'll find political cover from our left and we'll all go together. And everybody saw it. You could see the host, even like the left leaning Becky Quick and um, Andrew Sorkin. They weren't buying. They're going, yeah, we know what you guys did. All of a sudden, overnight, it changes. Glenn Yonkin comes in from Virginia, changes. You know, my brother's got kids in Fairfax County. It's a joke. They don't know what to do. They, but they know the politics are so bad about it. And people are tired of it. Right. No, it's amazing that you have those governors who took that action and the White House hasn't. I mean, you still have Biden getting off of Marine One to walk outside to the White House with his mask on. Um, you know, the, the requirement to wear a mask on airplanes uh, comes up, I think, March 22nd is when it currently expires, and everyone seems to expect it's going to roll past that. You know, that'll be interesting. Um, the idea that Omicron, which is everywhere. I think we'll be unmasking airplanes for, for, for 
the bureaucrats have too much power. Yeah, it's, it's a federal issue. It's, um, you know, pointless, I would say, since uh, <laughs> they've just never been able to correlate travel with increases um, in mortality and cases. All the air is very well filtered. As long as you have the APU running on the ground and then in the air, it's, uh, it's very well filtered. Um, if they wanted to send a signal to America that this is over, which you think they would have a political incentive to do at this point, except with the teachers unions and the other people who don't want to work, um, you know, they could say, okay, we're done masking on planes and we're done masking kids. Well, look, the, the left, the, the Democrats are trapped by their, they're trapped by their special interest groups. The teachers have them trapped. And in the teachers unions, you know, from what you read and, you know, no, no firsthand experience, from what I read, basically the teachers are split, but the activist teachers want those masks on for whatever reason it may be. But here, here's, here's the interesting thing, the dilemma the Democrats have themselves in. Imagine, this is what somebody told me the other day who, who's really, really familiar with Fairfax County Schools in Virginia. What he told me was, he said, right now, you've got, every time they have a meeting on masks, they've got a full room of 500 people, and outside there's 5,000 people, okay, who want the mask off. The problem is, as soon as they get the mask off, they got a full room of 500 nuts who want everybody to mask up. What they have to keep remembering is there's nobody out in the parking lot. In other words, this is a, this is a small group of people. I'm seeing it here in some of the schools, even at my daughter's school, where basically there's no reason for these girls to be masked up at continual. But they know that there are certain groups of parents, you know, the small minority of them, who are going to raise holy hell if masks come off for whatever reason, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, that's it. The only reason they should be wearing masks in my daughter's school is, quite frankly, they got some elderly nuns around. But then my point is you do mm -hmm. the Sweden thing. Just have the nuns move to the back for a while, you know what I'm saying? And that's it. But don't don't corrupt the girls. All right. Switching gears. Uh, we could give ourselves a pat on the back toward the end of this segment because it's another instance where I think we called the trend. Indonesia, the uh, reputed Donald Trump of Indonesia is getting into coal. His name, which I'm going to screw up here, is Hari Tanios Odibjo. <laughs> Guaranteed that is got the Hari Tenyush, right? You got the Hari okay. Tenyush. Right? Okay, I know that very much. well. Hey, uh, so very interesting guy. He runs a media conglomerate and a charter plane service, and he's going to yep. morph that company uh, into something that's much more energy focused, especially in coal. In fact, coal will now become uh, the main business. Um, and this is on the backdrop of Indonesia benefiting. I mean, first of all, they make stuff, they make coal, they make furniture, they uh, export lumber, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but they've been selling lots of coal to China. China used to buy most of its coal from Australia. China's mad at Australia for standing up for itself, um, doing things like, you know, uh, planning to buy submarines and, and, and not going along with Beijing's sort of diplomatic initiatives. So China switches to Austra from Australia to Indonesian coal. Incidentally, Australia is doing just fine. It just took the coal and sold it to Japan and India instead. So sorry, China, the coal boycott didn't work any better than the wine boycott. But anyway, Indonesia uh, doing pretty well. You've done business and shipping in that part of the world. Uh, good move, bad move. I think the two brightest economies, probably the two brightest economies in Southeast Asia, are Indonesia and the Philippines, largely because they have a stable birth rate now. In other words, the Philippines is about 2.3, 2.4. That's fine. That's a growth rate they can handle considering their migration trends and all that good stuff. Indonesia is a little bit higher. You know, I think I remember you know, closer to three, but still a growing population, uh, educating the people very quickly. 
um, becoming a place where companies continue to go in for higher end manufacturing. And I think the fact of the matter is they got a lot of coal and they have a lot of need for that coal. And I think it's going to be a very good business for them. And when it comes to China, I think it's just a myth that the China is going to be able to get off coal. So they're going to have to keep buying it. By the way, I will tell you a little story. Uh, the whole thing about the Australian coal is uh, some, not, not being purchased is somewhat ridiculous. My understanding is there's a disproportionate number of ships <laughs> departing Australia, heading to Japan that magically get diverted into China. You know, and, and I, in other words, cause you know, the ship, hey, they load up, they're going, they're loading up, you know what I'm saying? And a lot of the, a lot of the coals on regular contract for the Japanese, but there's the spot shipments and those guys, as they're moving North, you know, somebody picks up the phone and says, we'd be happy to take it at a little bit higher price over it goes, you know what I'm saying? And as long as the uh, government of China is willing to do a nod, nod, wink, wink, in other words, it leaves Australia heading to Japan. It leaves Australia heading to someplace else. And then halfway through, it's like a bill of lading change almost. But the Chinese, as far as they can say, we didn't buy any coal from Australia. We bought it coming from Japan or, we, you know, in other words, all that good stuff. My understanding is that's not as frequent as it had been in the past. It's, it's recently dried up a little bit. But, you know, I know I have a friend who's pretty tight in that area. And he says Australians are having no problem whatsoever. But China is continues to need industry, continues to need um, um, energy, and they're going to continue to build coal-fired plants. You know, one of the reasons also why they're going to build coal-fired plants hmm. because they don't have the massive amount of technical know-how coming out of the schools to run nuclear power plants. It's a nuclear power plant takes a lot of highly skilled, very smart people. And as the Chinese population has been dropping, as people are moving into other areas, quite frankly, it's harder and harder for them to go there. I saw some chart about six months ago. It's either something like for a coal, number of people taken for the same kilowatt hours plants. For a nuclear power plant, it's something like seven times more people than a coal plant because coal is pretty much automated. You know what I'm saying? In other words, it's not a whole lot, not, not a whole lot to it. Um, you know, once you set them up and you can just set them up a lot quicker, but nuclear power plants have so many more people involved. And so it's hard for the, the Chinese. It just takes longer to bring these things online and to have people to work on. Them. Hmm. Well, here comes the, uh, the pat on our back related to this a little bit is Rio Tinto. I think we're both yeah. uh, in that book bullish on that. It's come up year to date. We're only a month into the year, month and a half. It's from 68 79's dividend, despite that higher price, is still a 8.7% yield. Uh, and again, here's a company that does things, makes things. Of course, the environmentalists don't like it, but a real mining company with real operations, not so much coal, but gold and other minerals. Um, you still bullish? Yeah, absolutely. You know why I'm bullish? Because I was watching the, watching the news the other day. I was watching Fox or something, and they had the eight major energy companies sitting in the White House, you know what I'm saying? And then we had this crazy person who's going to the Federal Reserve, who's going to be going after energy companies on the Federal Reserve. Look, I'm telling you, the, the, in fairness to China, China's looked out and they said, hey, we're going to do all we can for the environment, but we're not going to cost people jobs. We're not going to hit our economy for it. India sent the same message out. Rio Tinto is going to be just fine. It's it's Look, it's a very American fallacy that somehow we get to jump up and down and tell the world what to do and they listen you know i think that's energy policy is the one place where it's completely 
they do what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. I, I have seen it in the Philippines. I'm seeing it in uh, Myanmar. I'm seeing other places. They're going to need power. As they need power, they're going to need minerals. Cool. Sticking with a, a bit of the Chinese here um, in a couple angles, I want to ask you about the Olympics. But before we get to that, Binance, I think I'm pronouncing that right, not Binance, Binance, yeah. buying a $200 million stake in Forbes. Um, Binance is a Chinese, was a Chinese-based cryptocurrency exchange. They have relocated their headquarters and they say, Scout's Honor, we are no longer Chinese, but of course they are. They were banned from doing business in the United States. They created a U.S. subsidiary, which apparently does conduct some business here. It's an under investigation, I gather. I think I read that right. Um, so, uh, mm -hmm. and of course, uh, they will be one of the two biggest investors in Forbes, which will go public through, of course, a SPAC. I mean, why would you do a regular IPO with all the regulatory requirements and steps if you can just do a SPAC? So Forbes ultimately going to be publicly traded and one of its big owners is going to be Binance. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Forbes already was was under some Chinese influence, if I'm recalling my history correctly, right? Oh, yeah. Forbes, Forbes Asia has got, I mean, I can tell, I can tell people stories of Forbes for for just weeks on end, like their close relationship with the Singaporean government. You know what I'm saying? Um, they're, they're, they're the Forbes, the Forbes, I mean, Forbes is a unique, the greatest story I ever heard about Forbes. And I heard this from a top editor at Jimmy Lai's house. And when Malcolm Forbes came up with the list the for, you know, the, the richest people, his chief editor came in and said, Hey, everybody, we know is going to think that, that they're going to know that this list is not accurate because we were giving him a hard time because we knew that from Apple Daily and that we knew who they were talking about. We knew the list wasn't accurate. You know what I'm saying? In other words, because our business people said, no, that doesn't sound right. And what Malcolm Forbes said to the guy, the guy said to him, hey, people are going to know this not <laughs> accurate. And Malcolm Forbes said, a lot more people are not going to know it's not accurate. So in other words, we're going to go with it. So so the point is, is like they've always been somewhat flexible. They are brilliant marketers. They know what they're doing. Steve Forbes got out there. He had to sell the, the you know, the family. It's got, there's three brothers or four brothers, whatever it is. They had to sell. They wanted to sell. He found a Chinese group to buy the magazine, to buy the Asian operations. So there's already an Asian, the Asian operations are already controlled by the Chinese. There's never a negative article in there about the Chinese. Every once in a while, somebody will sneak something in. Um, they used to try to do a news. Now they're basically just a conference, a conference magazine, and they show up. Um, a SPAC, yeah, why not? They're going to look for a bunch of people who think that they've got something going. Chinese company, I don't know who thinks they're <laughs> going to be doing journalism. They really haven't been for a while. You know, I mean, did you see the Bitcoin thing? Like the one, the woman who was arrested for that. She had a column in Forbes. Laundering like a billion dollars, uh, she and her husband. Yeah, yeah and she had a column uh, in Forbes. That's a lot of money. <laughs> the, the, pe the people that I know who used to write for Forbes, I mean, Forbes used to have some really good journalists, but the people that I know now that are doing things, I mean, it's basically, you know, anybody who turned, they don't pay. None of these people get paid. You just turn something in, you know? So, I mean, look, it's, it's the model that it is. It's kind of like I get in trouble when I say this, like Newsweek. Like, you know, Newsweek is um, um, Dinda Elliott's father. What I can't remember his name. He used to run it. It was this great publication, this pillar of the journalism community owned for a long time by the Washington Post before it was sold off to uh, 
uh, what's her name, the congresswoman from California, her and her husband, then she gave it up. It was bought by these, you know, this strange group or whatever it is. And, you know, but people still, it's kind of funny. People go, well, you know, I just had a, I just saw this Newsweek piece and I'm going like, you know, because I know, and, and it's like, I have the same reaction to Forbes, but it's a brand's a brand and brands matter in media business. So people see Forbes and they actually think something's there. It's, yeah. you know, it's kind of like U.S. News and World Report. I mean, people go, oh, you know, we're, this college is ranked U.S. News and World Report. U.S. News and World Report would sell. If you were a university and you wanted to be ranked, they would find a category to rank you in the top five, like top five liberal arts schools with most programs designed for the community of individuals who have learning disabilities. And then they would give you something like, and it was in the Midwest. And so then they would give you something that says, a, a, a U.S. Ah, News yes. and World Report top five cop Midwest <laughs> college. And then, you know, you have to flip the fold to see what it's for. Marketing. It, it, it's just ridiculous. It, it, it gets to that stage. And, and, and the problem is, is that publications, look, they're desperate for money. I, 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 we had a couple of magazines in Hong Kong as they were going out and they were dropping the craziness that would show up in my office for plans. You know what I'm saying? I mean, just craziness. And it was tragic because, you know, we had one magazine. It was the largest magazine in Hong Kong in the five-year period. It just went like this. And at the end, we couldn't even sell it. We just had we just had to shut it. At its height, it had 350 you can't, people. Yeah, well, you, it's just too hard to migrate online. And once you start migrate, You, you migrate paper. the segments online. You know what I'm saying? But once the platform becomes there, it doesn't mean anything anymore. You know, it's, it, 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 just, it just becomes part of it. You know, hence, hence my thing about why the New York Times buying the athletic, just build up your sports page. You know, it's, it's, it's awful now to spend the money and build, bring people in. People will find the stories. They don't, you don't need to bring anybody in with you like that. New York Times just bought Wordle, uh, which I haven't played, I gather. That's a Hong Kong guy. Hong okay. Kong uh, price in the low seven figures on the hills of that other purchase. Good for just, him. You know. I mean, my, I, it's a, it's a, you know, people forget. Like, I was looking at the Twitter results, and you know, Twitter in the last two years has bought something like twenty five, twenty six companies. You know, they, they, they buy technology, they buy talent. Sometimes I think with Wordle, that was basically, hey, this is a really popular game. These guys have got a good system here. Let's get this, bring it in here. You put it right next to their crossword thing. You know what I'm saying? And it's, I think, it's a really good agenda. Low seven figures. What does that tell you? I mean, mid seven figures. They paid six or seven million dollars for it. God bless the guy in Hong Kong. You got six or seven million dollars. <laughs> Hopefully, he's run, immigrating yes. out. Yeah, just, don't, don't don't bother converting it to Hong Kong dollars. Yeah, and get the money. Get the money. Get oh, get well, the money in point. Hong yeah, Kong where there's enough. no capital gains, and then run away. So <laughs> get the money on, and then run away as quickly the as possible. You know, maybe like a second. <laughs> <laughs> Bounce. Yeah. But yeah. So no, I, so I, I think, I think that's it. I, I still think I saw the news corp results the other day. I was ple pleasantly surprised. I don't want to go into that area until we have yeah. to, but I was pleasantly surprised there, you know, and I, 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 I think, I think that's it. And I know we have some other media companies to talk about. We do. Well, yeah. I mean, there's, we're talking about people who can execute switching to people who cannot. I know. Um, and that's DLAC. So once again, we're talking about a SPAC. This is the one that invested in Trump's media thing. Um, so Trump's first 
foray with the media company is not sort of the, the, the movies, the videos, the documentaries, the plays, the books, the stuff that's upstream, upstreaming conservatism and culture uh, that we have as conservatives. Uh, no play whatsoever. Uh, instead, he's doing just, you know, going head to head with Twitter, this giant, well-funded network, um, and they're flailing. So Truth Social is what is going to be called. Um, and it was supposed to come out in February, which was giving it a fair amount of lead time. I mean, this is not, this is 10 year old technology ripping off Twitter. I mean, Parler managed to do it seemingly pretty quickly, uh, but they've delayed that went to a uh, disclosure. And this is the interesting thing about DWAC because even though it's a SPAC, it is now, it's a public company that once it has operations has to file quarterly reports, annual reports, disclose major events. And one, one of those happened and that, you know, they're going to delay Trump uh, Truth Social, only about a month. But, um, you know, they have Devin Nunes, who's, a, would say, a fantastic litigator, former congressman at the top of this thing, but not a media executive. Um, and Trump really, outside of real estate, isn't known for strategic thought, execution, follow through. Uh, what do you think? I mean, Trump... <sighs> I think a lot of people, one of the things about media is everybody thinks they can do media, but very few people can execute media. You know, I mean, you know, look at look at what we just talked about, all these companies. Like, say what you want to say about Newsweek, but they managed to keep it going. Forbes just finds continual sucker after sucker. New York Times does a very good job executing. The Wall Street Journal does a pretty good job, too. The Bloomberg guys know what they're doing. There are people out there that know what they're doing. Um, at Twitter and some of these other guys, they have first mover, they're first movers, you know what I'm saying? But we saw what that meant for Facebook. I myself don't believe for a second that the Trump team that I've heard about that I know is over there have the people that can execute. I think that they believe that we're going to open up, Donald Trump's going to go there they're going to give away Trumpy Bear, you know, those little bears they give away. Oh, right, you know, that, little comp- that little company that sells everybody Trumpy Bears that grandmothers <laughs> buy to scare their children. You know, uh, if somebody gives Chase a Trumpy Bear, just find a way to have the cat kill it. But the thing is, is like you have those things there and, and they're not executing. And the fact is, you're exactly right. You're spot on. This is old technology that any technology team could have come to you and said, this is our roadmap. These are our things. This is what we have to have. Why aren't they hitting those? Because we think demand could be far more than we thought it was going to be, we want to make sure we're ready for it. No, that's not how you do it. You know, you basically get overwhelmed, you know what I'm saying, and then wait for it. I I think my personal belief is I think they are uh, – uh, I, I think it's a Trump – the Trump thing, and I think the right. fact of the matter is he, he thought he could do it. He thought it would be easy money. Um, it's not going to work out as I see it at this point in time. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. Mm-hmm. And also the other yeah. thing too, is I think Twitter will adjust quickly. You know what I'm saying? In other words, all Twitter has to do is let back on 15 or 20 people, you know, and then, and then you're back in, <laughs> and you're back in the game. Even Trump. I want, imagine that they let Trump back on. I bet, I bet Trump would abandon his platform and go. That's what I would do if I was Twitter. The moment he launched, I would wait one month and let Trump back on. I mean, I think people really have to understand that, you know, the way the advertising works now, it's tough. It's tough if you're seen as too far. I think even the lefties have a problem with that now. You know, in other words, 
Companies want middle of the road stuff. I think that's why in part, you know, with Jack leaving, I think we've seen some thing, Jack Dorsey leaving Twitter. I think we've seen some changes at Twitter. They're not going to get credit for, you know what I'm saying? But I think they're, I think the message is very clear. They are a commercial company now. They are trying to make it. Of course, the stock dived a couple of weeks ago, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, they're still making money. Yeah. One last, if we could circle back to magazines briefly, you know, I do get the Wall Street Journal on Saturday. Sometimes it comes on Sunday or Monday, but, um, and occasionally has a magazine in it now. And you do see some of these where the first 20 pages are, uh, expensive watches, jewelry, um, things like yep. that. And so to do that, like you have to, you have to have, um, proof of, of wealthy, uh, a wealthy readership then. Yeah. I mean, look, you, 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 yeah, you know, the demographics, I mean, the wall, the wall street journal, the New York times, um, the New York, actually the New York times, essentially they have an incredibly solid demographic readership. In other words, the New York times, um, and the Wall Street Journal, they would prefer their 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 writers think that somehow they're writing for fellow <laughs> bohemians out in the world. But the real fact of the matter is that the Wall Street Journal, you're writing for fat white guys like me, you know, who are upper income, and you know, we read it and they they refuse to acknowledge that, which is why I think it'd be a very tough job being an editor over there and why you get some crazy stuff. The, the New York Times a little bit more dynamic in their in their readership, but it's a very wealthy readership. And these people have money. And the one thing about it is I, I'm a, I love print. I think print's a fantastic medium. Still the simple fact of the matter is, is like the wall street journalist, I think their weekend Sunday is still a million copies. You're getting a beautiful ad that somebody looks at and they see it. And, and, and we do know from all the studies that we do in advertising that if somebody stops and looks at an ad, there's retention, whereas digitally online, the retention's not there. They just right by it. And it's beautiful. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think who I saw the other day in the Wall Street Journal. And I was like, wow, that's a beautiful ad. Oh, it was Cartier. Cartier had a beautiful ad. You know, it really set, it really was like, wow, that's a really nice looking ad. And that's the type of something that people would go, hey, that really, that looks pretty good. And that's what you want. You're not going to sell anything that moment on it. You know what I'm saying? But you're building yeah, brand. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, pre, it's a, a narrowing niche. And you notice the journal uses nice paper on that too. They don't. They use pretty good paper on that. In other words, they don't use cheap paper. It doesn't have like a flimsy feel to it. Okay, and then just to close that final topic, yeah. let's talk about the business part of the Olympics. It's still a little bit early days as far as getting ratings and seeing how this really goes. But the the disaster, the opening ceremony disaster. was way off of four years ago. It's the freaking uh, Titanic. Way off of four years before that. And NBC paid billions and billions of dollars for this. And yeah, you get 15, 17 million viewers for, for the big event, the opening event. And uh, I don't know, a network in prime time, you should be, you should be doing that on any, any given Thursday night. Let me just tell you this. We could go, last, the other night, Purdue played Michigan, okay? Over a million viewers. That's one regional high college basketball game, okay? The Olympics had that night in the U.S. like 4 million, 5 million viewers on all their different channels and everything. You know what I'm saying? Look, first of all, I'm not saying ice skating is not a sport. I'm just saying that <laughs> if you gave those girls some hockey sticks and they went after each other, there'd be a lot more people watching it. You know what I'm saying? Let's just say, you know, you put the Zamboni out on the ice and have, it ch have them chasing them around for their life. I, I, think, I think viewership goes up. That's just me, but you know what I'm saying? So my, my point is, is that 
I mean, you know, I, I love the I love the luge. You know, we all watch. I mean, let's face it. What was the number one video from the downhill skis? The guy who like got himself, he racked himself on one of the things. He came. I mean, you know, it's look. It's great sports. They're great athletes. But the fact of the matter is, the best line I heard is essentially people do not watch TV the way they used to watch TV, and they get their sports clips. They want to watch the sports clips. They want to watch that big moment. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they want to watch that, right. that stunning right. performance. You know what I'm saying? They want to watch all these things, but they want to watch it like that. You know, and the NBA, the NFL. I mean, I, I know, I, know if I have a friend who works at MLB over here in New Jersey. You know what I'm saying? He said they have got a team sitting there all day long Literally, as the game is happening, they're putting the highlights together. Mm-hmm. In other words, when the Red Sox play the Yankees, the highlight reel is ready 15 minutes after the game is over because they've been making the highlight reel the whole time, and they just run it through. And then they've got to then they then they scrub that highlight reel. The fact of the matter is, they're really hurting. The best part about the Olympics is I watched the Gutfeld show on Fox at night, and they're advertising on Fox for the Olympics. That tells you how desperate they are. Their ratings are awful. Their ratings are awful. They're down 40%. How would you love to be the Fox uh, ad salesperson taking a call from NBC? That would be fantastic. (laughs) You know, the the viewership is down. It's down 43% across the board from from 2018. But in the key demographic, because I'm a geek and pay attention to this stuff, in the key demographic of 18 to 49, which I'm not part of, it's down 63%. Wow. Okay. So people just aren't watching this thing. They don't care about this thing. Add on top of that, where are you? You're in China. And you've got all these bad things happening, all these bad stories happening. Nothing's going right. The place is yes. ugly. It's absolutely horrible. We've, we've got the stories of coming out of the places are bad. There's, a, uh, there's, there's, the, uh, there's the, the Chinese-American girl who be, started Elaine Gu. She's going to be on the she's going to be on the menu pretty soon for U.S. sports broadcasters. People, you know, she's being celebrated right now by the culturalists. And look at the coverage of the Olympics. NBC has brought in Andrew Brown and this woman from Yale, Jing Tu, you know, who are supposed to add cultural relevance relevance to it. You know what I'm saying? It's a sporting event. We want to watch sports. We don't want to hear about the Qing <laughs> Dynasty in 18 whatever whenever it was. You know what I'm saying? We want to watch sports. And then we want to be able to debate sports without every time we start debating sports, they remind us that there's a human rights violation going on over in the corner. I'm with the human rights people. I'm on their side. I'm just telling you it makes lousy TV. You know, why would we, why would the, why would the IOC think when Colin Kaepernick took a knee, okay, and destroyed NFL ratings that still haven't recovered, okay, where a lot of people just won't watch it anymore. Why would that happen with Colin Kaepernick? Okay, let's be fair. Why would that happen? Why would that not happen with the Olympics when everything about the Olympics is political now? Everything. God bless the activists who have been sticking it to China. This is a huge loss for NBC. I have a mm-hmm. estimation that I saw the other day because you remember they lost money in the Summer Olympics. They pay seven point five billion for twenty years of so, Olympics. Yeah, I don't know where around. they're at in that stage. Apparently, they lost. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're halfway through right now, basically. My understanding is they lost close to $500 million. That's probably high, but they lost a few hundred million dollars right. in, no crowds, yeah. 
in 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 Tokyo, which makes sense because the advertisers just start paying. You know what I'm saying? My understanding that this could be the smaller, shorter period of time. It still could be the same, 300 million. Look, they brought the, they brought Mike Trillo back. You know, he's the lead NBC announcer at the Olympics. He's their top guy. And where where is he? He's back in he's back in New York now. Yeah. Okay, or he's back in Connecticut, wherever they got him. But the point is, because you know, they just it's, in other words, they've given up. They're 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 phoning it in. It's not working. Um, there was something in was it Ad Week the other there was Ad Week the other day that essentially the people who paid deposits the ratings are so bad. Let's say you paid for your ad, you paid forty percent now or fifty percent now, and then you were going to pay the rest when you get the final ratings because it's on a scale. My understanding is for some of these guys who paid the 50%, it's so low, they're actually going to get a rebate from the money they already paid. So it's, yeah. a, it's, it's, a, it's a disaster. And I think what it's going to tell us is the next time we have Olympics, it'll probably be a Twitter and a YouTube Olympics. And, and that's, in other words, like if we'll be sitting here and I go, oh, now you know you have the 800-meter race and it's going to go boom. It's going to come right up to you. You know what I'm saying? 800, the 800 meters is going to come right to you, you know, and, and, and then you'll watch it and then you'll go back to whatever you're doing in the day. But the idea of sitting around like surfing and they go from this and that, I think that's right, over. Right. Well, they also might want to do it in a place that's actually known for winter sports when it comes to the Winter Olympics. You know, maybe you can get away with Japan. There's some. Did you see that downhill thing? They got the, they oh, got the power. Yes, and now it's not a nuclear plant, it, as some people saying? were speculating. It's cooling towers from an old, and uh, from an old, I think, coal plant or gas plant. Yeah, it's, it's ugly. Just, I mean, I know. All, 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 you know. <laughs> that's the one thing with the Olympics. It's, it's usually some nice Norwegian mountain I mean, in the background, and you're like, "Oh, that looks pretty," and they're jumping. It's like this looks like this looks like Road Warrior does Winter Olympics. And, and, and the thing is, I mean, I, I will say the other thing. Look, these things are always supposed to be these grand propaganda wins for China. I'm sure internally in China they'll be happy about it. That's why one of the big stories is the New York Times has sold their soul to this woman, Gu, the whatever's going on there. They've got all kinds of – I'm sure there's going to be these in-depth reviews. This one guy's chasing the story. Maybe he's going to write a book. You know what I'm saying? And um, the, the, his name's John Branch, the reporter. It's, he's not reporting. He's basically reading their press releases. For the, for the for the woman, but the fact of the matter is that she's trending in China. That's even shows the Chinese are not happy with their overall performance. In other words, she's the only bright spot they've got, and and the bright spot is sticking it to the West. They think they're sticking it to the West. That's worth a discussion, probably to see after how she after how she after how she comes out of this, because I think there's some real commercial implications of what she's done. I don't think it's a bad move on her part for her personally, financially. Morally, down the road, is probably not going to be good for her, but, you know, we'll see. Well, we'll stick with that story. Uh, that's all the time we have for this episode of Simon White. And if you like what you saw, please subscribe to us if you're watching on YouTube or follow us on your podcast catalog. We'll be back again soon with another episode. Thanks.